0: Well, that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> and I realized that there is only one way to top it. It's by, by going straight to the scripture. Um, so uh, if you don't mind, if you're able, stand with me for the reading of the word. As you know, Pastor Jeff a couple of weeks ago launched a series, Shine Like Stars from the book of Philippians. And we are on Philippians 3 today. I'm going to read from Philippians 3 Verses 4 to 8. Although I myself could boast as having confidence even in the flesh, if anyone thinks he is confident in the flesh, I have more reason. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the serpent passing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You may be seated. The passage we read today actually brings to mind uh, an episode from my own life, uh, a major transition that happened in my career and in my life in general. And I call this chapter (laughs) Technology to Theology. This happened 21 years ago. Joanne and I immigrated to Canada And one of the things all new immigrants go through a a rite of passage or a ritual is what we call credential evaluation. What it means is that you basically find the equivalency of your academic qualification from your home country and match it with that of your host country. So as soon as we landed, I went to University of Toronto, which is one of the largest state universities, like UCLA, and they have a degree evaluation division and gave my certificate, and I waited for almost a month, and after that, they called me, and I went there, and they gave me a credential equivalence certificate, which said that my degree in electrical engineering from Mahatma Gandhi University in India is equivalent to a similar degree in engineering from any university in Canada, which was quite surprising because I thought I will have to take some extra credits and all that. So I was so ecstatic. So I'm ready to roll in the new country, right? Then the receptionist said, by the way, it is a good idea to do a postgraduate degree in engineering, which might help you to find a better job in Canada. They're kind of doing a little bit of selling there, right? <laughs> so I said, why not? Yeah, I will do a master's degree in engineering. So she said the, she gave me a drawing of where the faculty of engineering is in University of Toronto. If you know anything about Toronto, it's at St. George campus, their main campus. She showed me the building. Uh, it's a few blocks away, so I was walking. And I was almost next to the faculty of engineering and I saw a building right next to that. I'm not making it up. You can Google it. You can see that. The next, the the building right before the faculty of engineering is Knox College School of Theology. That's what it said. And between this, there is only one building. It's a convocation hall, you know. So I thought, huh, that's interesting, (laughs) because where I'm coming from, when you study theology, you go to a seminary, or you go to a Bible college, or, you know, something like that. I didn't know a prestigious university like University of Toronto will have a theology department. So I just walked in. I always had this passion to to study Bible and theology, but it was not really serious and was not the best time. But anyway, I thought I'll check it out, just on the way. (laughs) I didn't have any appointment, but the register, her name is Ruth McCartan. I remember her because she is the first white woman I met, and she changed my life. <laughs> and she took me in, you know, even though I didn't have an apartment, uh, so appointment. <laughs> and uh, so I explained the whole story, and she said, do you mind if I look at your transcript? So I had the transcript ready. She, she, she uh, took a copy of the transcript, and then she... Started looking at it one by one, and the first one she saw was applied mechanics. And then she took a red pen, <laughs> and she looked at me like she shook her heads like that, head like that, and then she crossed it out, you know. Then the next one, I don't know, circuit theory and design. Hmm. She crossed it out. Power system engineering one and two. She could cross, cross, double cross. And she went through all the 56 courses I've done in four years, and she crossed out every single papers, every, every single courses I did, right? And then she asked me, haven't you done any courses in humanities? And I said, ma'am, what is humanities? <laughs> I don't even know what humanities mean because the, the, the country I'm coming from, we don't study something unless we, it gets us a job, <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we, study, we study medicine or engineering or accounting or something like that. It will give us a job. We don't have the luxury of studying philosophy, humanities or gender studies or theology and all these things which you won't really land you a job. Oh, then she, oh man, like she is. I, I still remember the frustrating look on her face, but somehow she liked me. And she said, Matthew, I will consider you for a conditional admission. The condition was that I have to score at least A- in all the first year courses, then only my second year admission will be, anyway. uh, So there was a condition, I will consider you for a conditional admission, but here is the reality. If you walk up to that building, which is the Faculty of Engineering, they will give you credit for all the 56 courses you have done. They will welcome you with open arms. But if you decide to join here at the School of Theology, I can't give you even one credit. Now, it is your decision. Obviously, I made the wrong decision. (laughs) (laughs) The point is, when I read this passage, it is almost the same predicament Paul is facing. He has a glowing transcript. His resume is impressive. I don't want to do an exegetical study on it, but, but some of you, know, you will be wondering, what does that even mean? A list of things. There are seven things in his resume he highlights. So these are the things. Circumcised. On the eighth day, which doesn't mean anything to us. <laughs> but if you talk to a Jew, they almost carry it like their school vaccination card. Because it is important for them to get circumcised on the eighth day if you are an Orthodox Jew. And that is the rule, and that is what Jesus did. But the reason he is emphasizing that is at that time, there are a lot of converts to Judaism even king herod who is a famous person you know in the in the new testament was actually a convert to judaism he was an edomian his dad converted to judaism so it is important that when you so when you convert to judaism obviously you get circumcised at whatever age you are converting right you know so when you say you are circumcised on the eighth day, which means that I am born into a Jewish family. I am not some kind of a convert. I am a a real Jew. That's what it really means. Then he says, of the nation of Israel. Now again, you know that Jews are one of the people who are almost always in diaspora. Jews are all over the world. Even in that time, there were in Alexandria and Syria and all these different parts of the world, the Jewish Jewish community existed, even in India. If you come to my hometown, there is a Jewish community that were there and they're still there to an extent right from the time of King Solomon in India. So they are all over the world and all of them come to Jerusalem for the main feast and all that, you probably know this. But the point he's making here, I am of the nation of Israel means I am from here, from the heartland of Judaism. I am not some kind of an immigrant Jew. I am not some kind of a diaspora Jew. I am authentic Jew of Israel, of the nation of Israel. I am from here. I'm not a Jew from India. I'm from here, Right? And of the tribe of Benjamin, that really means is that if you study the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the southern kingdom of Judah had only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And all the other ten tribes from the northern kingdom, which eventually Lost, And that's what you probably call lost tribes of Israel because the Assyrians came and, you know, took over the nation. And they are not necessarily considered authentic Jews because, and that's, these 10 tribes are called the the lost tribes, whereas Judah and Benjamin, they still carry on the tradition and they are there and purebred Jews, pure breed of Jews. And they are from the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. They have royal blood and they they have big political connections. So that's what it means of the tribe of Benjamin. Hebrew of Hebrews, my dad and my dad's dads and we are all, we are born into this. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now, for many of us when we hear that, oh, Pharisees, unfortunately, Pharisees have a bad rap. In the Bible, right? It's, uh, it has become synonymous with hypocrisy. But if you really study first century Judaism, being a Pharisee means, don't get me wrong, it's almost like saying conservative evangelical. Not in a bad way, not in a bad way. Actually, there are a lot of scholars who consider that Jesus himself was a Pharisee. Jesus himself was of a sect of Pharisee. There are a lot of scholars, scholarly articles written on that and that is also why Jesus was m- blaming Pharisees more than anybody else because he was making fun about his own tribe and that's the nature of the, of the joke itself. The irony is that you can only make fun about who you are. You cannot make fun about other people, right? You know what I mean? So being a Pharisee means the most zealous, the most conservative When it comes to the scriptural position, they play by the rule. They live by the book. That's what it means. A Pharisee as to the law, as to zeal, a persecutor of Christ. And he says that I'm not just talking the talk. I am walking the walk. I will hunt the enemies of my faith. I will bring my words into action. I will do anything anything to anything to protect my faith and the law that is given to me as to the zeal a persecutor of the church and the seventh one as to righteousness of law blameless blameless there are 613 commandments or mitzvahs in the, in the Torah, in the Old Testament. A Jew, even today, follows 630 small commandments, or so separated into 613. I follow all of them. You can challenge me on anything. I am morally pure. All the seven highlighted qualities in the transcript. And then he became a Christian. He took that to the Jerusalem church, the big church in Jerusalem where Peter and James and all the big shots of Christianity is there, right? So Peter welcomed Paul and he looked at this resume and he took a red pen, it's my imagination, right? He crossed out, circumcised the eighth day. Doesn't matter. That doesn't, you don't get credit for that, right? And the nation of Israel, cross it out. Hebrew of Hebrews, who cares? Cross it out. (laughs) Morally pure, no way. Cross, cross, big cross. In the end, Paul says that all these things which was gained to me, my credential, things I worked so hard, it became a loss, a loss to me. Did you know that Paul had to wait 14 years to start his ministry, real ministry after conversion? I'll explain that. After his conversion that happened in the gates of Damascus when he had a literal revelation from Jesus Christ, from that day to the day he embarked his first missionary journey, that's his first commissioned journey, There were, there was, there is a gap of 14 years. Can you believe that? If you are a pastor here, somebody comes, uh, you know, say for example, somebody has a, I don't know, a PhD in Islam who was against Christianity or something like that, he suddenly converted and become a Christian, the first thing I'll do is to make, get him to the pulpit next Sunday. Because we wanted to show him off. That's not what the church did. 14 years. And in between, he had to be in a desert, he was in Arabia. And the, the the strange thing is, from the day of his conversion to the day of his first missionary journey, 14 years of this time is described in only 16 verses. 16 verses in the, in the book of Acts. There are only 16 verses about what this great man did in the first 14 years of his after his conversion. And then For the next 10 years there are another 16 chapters about what he has done in the book of Acts. You you see the difference? And also Paul with a PhD in Jewish studies was never allowed to minister among the Jews. He is called the apostle of the Gentiles. I don't understand that. If you have a PhD in Islam and you are a Muslim, you became a Christian, I want you to go to Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or wherever the Muslims are. No, that was not the decision. You go to where you have no credential, no credibility, and you start over, start from scratch. So this is not something just Paul wrote. This is reality. This is reality where he counted all those things which was gained for him. To be a loss. You know why? Surpassing value of knowing Christ. Not kidding. How do we value? And people are talking about value. Gold, the investment in gold used to be the right thing to do. Then, you know, if you're an international person, invest in dollars. Now people are talking about Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin? And we are all looking up at, at what, is, what is the value that surpasses all other value. And here Paul says that I don't care about all these things in this resume because I'm not investing in any of my credential because I found surpassing value. Of knowing Christ, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to be very jealous of my of, of my rich friends. You know, I had some friends who were very rich. <laughs> um, I'm a, you know I'm from a middle class family. I was never rich or never poor. I always had everything I wanted. You know, but these guys had everything they wanted and more. Right. So I was always jealous, and then, then I have this way of consoling myself. They may be rich, but I have Christ. They don't have, they don't have Christ. I have Christ. Praise God. What I have surpasses what they have. Then I started, you know, I feel jealous about people who are talented, right? People who can sing and who people can play sports and like Margaret, like, you know, who in the world thought that she, she, she preached, she was preaching a storm up here, right? People can sing and people can preach and there's Dr. Lauren White and they can sing and they they can send rocket to Mars and all this kind of stuff. And, and I used to, you know, I said, you know, so I have, I had some friends like that who were very good, good at everything. I felt, well, they may have that, but I have Christ. You know, the value I have surpasses all that. Then I came to particularly in California, you have all these good-looking people, right? (laughs) The City of Stars and the surfer dudes, you know, and, and, you know, blonde hair, and they they all look like, man, like they're good-looking people. That guy looks like Brad Pitt. And I look like, I don't know, Gandhi, (laughs) right? (laughs) I know Gandhi is a very smart man, and he's a very intelligent man, but he ain't no Brad Pitt, Right? (laughs) So I used to be jealous of all this. Then I would say, Yeah, but I have Christ. My value I have surpasses all this, right? But then I found rich, talented, good looking Christians. (laughs) They are not only rich and they are not only good looking, they are not only talented, they are wonderful children of God. They are walking with the Lord in their humble way. Man, they are the worst right (laughs) there is nothing (laughs) how do you console yourself (laughs) how do you console yourself they got everything you have and more they have Christ too they're wonderful people right that's when the Lord taught me a lesson from mathematics that's my sorry Jeff you know we are very different (laughs) God speaks to me eh, through the language of math that's our love language right when you do math You know there is this there is this thing called infinity. You know infinity. If you if you do math, infinity is represented as an eight sign sideways, right? So infinity is an undefinable number because its value surpasses everything. You put one billion. Triple trillion, whatever you want to put, but you put infinity right across its value surpasses everything. That's what we call infinity. And infinity is used in, in, in mathematical equation. Limit extends to infinity, one by x, and all this kind of so the calculus things, and you use that in mathematical equation, infinity. And the strange thing about infinity is that infinity plus anything is the same as infinity plus nothing. That infinity plus 20 is the same as infinity plus 200. Is the same as infinity plus infinity. That drives you crazy. And if you, don't, <laughs> if you don't like math already, now I know you're not even going to. Think about math, right? Talking about infinity. Because the value of infinity surpasses everything. And that is like... Paul says the surpassing value of knowing Christ is like that because Christ plus, Christ plus nothing is the same as Christ plus everything. If you have Christ plus a spouse, it's the same as a Christ plus no spouse. If you have Christ with a big mansion in San Marino, it's the same as Christ plus being homeless. And that's a very strange equation. It's difficult to grapple, but you ask Caltech people and JPL people, they do this on an everyday basis. This is reality. This is not pie in the sky, spiritual stuff I'm talking about. This is mathematics. Christ plus everything is the same as Christ plus nothing. And that is the investment, yes, Paul is making. Now my question is this you know, the only time infinity, not the only time, the main, you know, one of, the, one, <laughs> one of the trickiest thing to do with infinity is that when you take infinity to the bottom line of, bottom of the line of an equation, for example, one over infinity or one divided by infinity is zero. Generally, a consensus that. But that means if you have a divided by equation and, you know, there's a numerator on top and the denominator on the bottom, right? That's how you, you solve an equation, right? So when the infinity goes from numerator to denominator, suddenly the value of the equation becomes zero. It becomes nothing. Now, that's a dangerous thing when you play with infinity. Infinity has all this value as long as you keep it above the line. But if you keep it below the line, it suddenly nullifies everything you did. It cancels out all the values you attributed. And this is a dangerous thing that has been happening to many, many Christians and many, many churches. Even though we preach about the serpent, value of knowing Christ you can go to many churches and see people are so grumpy, so uh, so disappointed there is no joy in their life and and, and Paul says in the scripture says that there is the surpassing value of finding him and they have found him they have taken baptism they have they have been walking with the Lord but somehow in the in the priority of things this infinity went below the line. We have other values that took over, that took precedence and above the line. And Paul is asking us today, challenging us today to come back, to do math with infinity, bring it above the line so that you will know the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now again, I want you to remember that this is a willful decision Paul took. This didn't come easy because the word counted comes there three times. So there is, Paul doesn't say that it doesn't have any value per se, because I don't want you to get the wrong message. I want all of you to be rich. I want all of, there is nothing wrong in being rich. There is nothing wrong in having fancy cars and fancy houses. If God gives it to you. But the question is how you count what you have. That's what makes the difference. It's not what you have that makes the difference. It's how you count what you have that makes the difference. And Paul said, and first he said, I have whatever was gained to me, I count it a loss. It is a willful decision he made. He's not saying that this is nothing. This is important stuff, he said in this resume, but even though it is important, I count. It is a decision I made to change my priorities and my value system, that now I have a different way of counting, a different way of doing mathematics, and now I have a different value system. Then he said, not only that whatever was gained for me, I count loss, Everything, all I have, and that's the next verse, all I have, I counted as loss. Then he goes one more level down. He says, not only that all I have, I counted as loss, all I have, I count as rubbish, (laughs) not just loss. See, loss means there still has value, right? I count it as loss means it has value, but I'm not going to use it or it has no significance in my life. I'm going to let it go. That's what it means. I count it as loss. But at the next step, Paul says, I don't think even it has any value. I count it rubbish. It's garbage. All those PhD in Jewish uh, studies which I just described to you, it is not only that I count it as, as loss, but it is pure. Garbage, Mere rubbish. That's that's the verse which is being used here. And that is a challenging thing for us to hear. Now, here is the twist. You know why Paul said that? Because when you read Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, yes, I like this verse more than John 3.16, I'm sorry, but I like it. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 to 8 and you might hear me saying this pretty much every sermon because that's so close to my heart this is how it goes although he existed in the form of God he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped he emptied himself Taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What it says is that, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did you get that? What it says that, even though Jesus was God himself, he counted it as a loss. He counted his heavenly glory as a garbage. And he emptied himself because he found the serpent value of knowing you yes. Thank you, Jesus. you thought the world likes you right for corporations you are nothing but a data for leaders you are nothing but a followers for churches you are nothing but a volunteer but for God of the Bible only the God of the Bible by the way Only the God of the Bible found surpassing value in who you are. And he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He counted it as mere rubbish and came down in the form of a human being, came down, died for you. And he found you so valuable, and everybody thought you have no value with your life. You are a nobody, and you keep hearing this again and again. But I want you to know that God thought you are worth dying for. Jesus. You are worth dying for. <clears throat> now, if you find that surpassing value <laughs> of knowing Christ, you will be like my sisters here in this first two rows. Right? I'm, I'm thankful for you. You know, I, I would love you to come. reserve the seats for them. <laughs> it's, it's good. See, we need to realize the price that was paid in Calvary. We are not talking about some philosophical constructs some morality lecture, that this is not a Sunday lecture. This is an altar where I am telling you a sacrifice has been made for your salvation and without that salvation, everything that you put in your numerator is meaningless and it is important for you to realize that Jesus died for your salvation. He counted everything he had He had was meaningless and useless and rubbish for your sake and now the question is, what would you count? Worthless for the surpassing joy of knowing him. How do you repay this debt? You know, I'm going to end with a short story. There was a very famous rich art collector, you know, people who collect big paintings of Picasso and Monet and I don't know Van Gogh and millions of dollars worth of painting and he died suddenly unexpectedly and uh, his estate was being auctioned An estate manager decided that it's going to be auctioned everything was written in the will and he was he he didn't have any heirs so he was just a single man living all by himself in his mansion anyway So at the time of auction, people from all over the world flew into the place because he had some precious collection, big paintings with millions and millions of dollars. And the auction started and everybody is getting ready to bid millions and millions for Picasso and Monet and all that because he has this rare collection of painting. And at the beginning of the auction, they brought a painting, which is a small painting of a, you know, it looked very crude. It didn't have a sign who who drew the picture. And the picture did honestly look ugly, It didn't look that great. It was the picture of a young man in a soldier uniform. And they said, who is, what is this picture? Why are you bringing it? Bring the Picasso, bring the Monet. And they said, the estate manager said, sorry, according to the will, this." Painting has to be auctioned first. Okay, they said, okay, get on with it. So we are waiting for the next big one, right? And they opened it for auction. Nobody wanted the painting. Nobody with any sense will bid for that painting. So saying, anybody there? Anybody there? Nobody. And then there was a butler, butler who actually grew up in that house, and he said, Sir, I would like to have that painting. Can I bid for it? And said, Sure. Okay. Nobody's taking it. How much you can bid? And he opened his wallet, and all he had was twenty dollars said, sir, I have $20. He said, okay, that's all I have. I'll give it to you. He said, okay, $20, going once, going twice, you know, sold. You know, so he got the painting of, the, of the, uh, th- this painting. And so the auctioneer gave it to him, and he said, why in the world do you want this painting? So the butler said, sir, I was there when this painting was, you know, he, when this, this painting was done by my master. And the, and the boy or this young man you see in the picture is actually the only son of my master. And uh, his, his mother passed away right after his birth and he was the pride and joy of the master. He grew up with all of us. But when he turned 21, he was drafted to war. And when he was going for the war, he put on this uniform. Before, before he left the house, my master, painted this portrait of his son. And he was painting this with tears in his eyes. I was so deeply emotional for him, so I just want this painting so that I can take it to my home, I can remember my master and his son, that's all I wanted. I said, oh, that's very nice of you. Okay, let's bring the Picasso, let's bring the Monet, right? Everybody was waiting for the next one. Then the estate manager came and said, thank you ladies and gentlemen for being here, our auction has ended you can all go home. And they said, what? You know, we want to bid for the next big paintings. And he said, the will said this. There are two clauses in the will of this rich man. The painting is called the sun, by the way, the, the sun. So the first clause was the painting of the, the sun has to be auctioned first. And clause number two, whoever gets the sun gets everything. Whoever gets the sun gets everything Now you got the story you know what exactly i meant this is not about painting there is a surpassing value of knowing the sun you may have everything in this world you might be rich you might be talented you might be good looking you have excellent credentials all have of any significance only and only if you have the sun because whoever gets the son gets everything. So I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to say a prayer. I want to invite you into this. And if you have never known Jesus as your personal savior, if you thought Jesus was just another moral teacher who said some great things, Oh, Jesus was another martyr who came and uh, suffered for some kind of cause. Think again. Think again. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. Jesus is the emptied God. He emptied himself. He found surpassing value in knowing you. And nobody has ever known you that way. Nobody has ever thought of you that way. Nobody has evaluated you that way. And here is your chance to fall into his arms and to say, Jesus, I would love to walk with you. I want to experience the surpassing value, the surpassing joy that you have promised in the scripture. Would you pray this prayer with me? Father God, thank you for this Sunday. And we know that the world looks at us nothing but consumers and data and followers. And everybody wants something from us. And nobody values us for who we are. But we are grateful for the fact that you left everything you had and you counted everything you had to be a loss, a mere rubbish to come down to this world and die on the cross for our sins. Lord, we surrender our lives today. And even if I am a Christian, Lord, if I haven't found the surpassing value of knowing you, give it to us. Give us the joy of salvation. Restore unto us. that Renew that spirit as we sang today, a revival in knowing you and experiencing you, knowing you deeper and deeper every day. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: How many know that Jesus is enough? Jesus is enough. We're going to declare with a new song just this name of God, Jireh, Jireh. Jehovah Jireh is our provider. He is enough. He is enough. I've never been more loved than I am right.
0: A thank you for coming to church today. And as Pastor Jeff said, we are slowly reopening. I'm very excited about what the Lord is doing in our community right now. And if you are a young adult in college, that group, we have a big party kind of a meeting happening this uh, Friday. A lot of things are happening like that. And again, it's a privilege for us to take everything to the Lord in prayer. I'm so glad Pastor Jeff led us in a prayer time today. And as you know, I mean, obviously, there are so many things happening in the world, but particularly we are commanded in Psalms 122, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? It doesn't matter which side of the equation you are in. It doesn't matter which theology you have, but the lives are lost. Every single life is important to God, so keep remembering the peace of Jerusalem in your prayer. Now, as you leave, may the Lord... Help you find the surpassing value of knowing him. And may he help you experience the surpassing joy of walking with him. And may you embrace the surpassing hope of the coming kingdom, the true Jerusalem. Go and enjoy the life with God. Amen.